Mario 64 doesn't have a hype train. What are you talking about? Of course it does. <laughs> of course it does. There are so many people still playing that game. And it's still... Well, who cares? Mario's dead now. Hello! And welcome to Video Gems, the podcast where we kidnap someone every week and drag them to the depths of hell to talk about their videos with us. I am your host, Dark Fry. And I'm your co-host, Salty Boy. Today we have I Am Error with us, or for short, Error. Yeah, Error, introduce yourself, please. <laughs> um, I am Error. Uh, that's a name kind of doubles there. And I, yeah, I am I'm, I Am Error. Uh, yeah, I am also I am Error. <laughs> um, I make videos on YouTube under that handle. I, I like to play games. I'm a PhD student. I study games, too uh in my phd program of media studies um and yeah i like to play games that's that's my main thing yes i'll i'll just i'll just uh start by by making it known that error i i hate you because quite frankly you're making the rest of us look bad i don't know about that so <laughs> so so you have phd students so like actually smart not and necessarily pro- provably smart like like uh a, i don't know like a, i feel like a phd is a is um well yeah i guess there are some pretty questionable phd havers out there but it's like something that is typically used as a proof of smartitude you know i don't think of myself as smart <laughs> well i guess so no one does. I mean, but I don't know if it has anything to do with the PhD, but I I do know that you have given very valuable feedback to a lot of video essayists, including yes. myself and Dark Fry. Oh, I don't know actually yes, if, you, yes. if you reviewed anything I have written. Well, Maybe those short a, um, trends. I'm a writing teacher, so you know it, that helps a lot. You know, yeah, like yeah, to yeah. Writing, writing. teach writing teacher, so actually knows how to write. Knows how to like, tell someone else whoa. how to write. <laughs> and, 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 pr- okay, get this, get this, listen to this, L- fucking listen to me. Error uploads a video essay weekly. I am in a call with, with, with a cryptid right now. I feel like I'm talking to Bigfoot. You shouldn't exist. <laughs> well, no. Some degree, I, I sacrifice like, uh, quality for quantity. Um, oh, I, yes. I wouldn't this say that. This is but. like this is quite frankly, it quite frankly should be illegal, should not be allowed. Like there should be something, I think, in the Constitution or something. Uh, that that just that prohibits this. The video essayist Constitution. It shouldn't. I mean, Scott the Waz makes a video <laughs> yes. every week. I've never watched any of them, but it, does he? He does. Still, yeah, pretty much. I I think he went on vacation for a while, but. Mm. Generally speaking, he, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, I think I think he I think that started like pretty recently. I don't know. I haven't watched Scott the Waz in a while, even though I really I really do enjoy that man's content. I think he is great. Um. Anyway, speaking of uh, your channel, and that you said it's interesting because you said that you sacrifice quality for quantity, and I I don't know if I I would agree with that because yes, your videos are short. I don't know. Well, they are over 15 minutes most of the time, I'd say. I'm not sure. Well, about like... they, they vary quite quite a lot, but somewhere between typically 12 and 20, yeah. Yeah, and... Uh, yeah, a good length uh, uh, for, for a video. 
So what would you say the focus of your channel is? Um, it sometimes depends. I divide my videos into trilogies. Helps me stay focused. So um, it depends on what the trilogy is. But in general, I would say that there are two main focuses to my channel, which is one, asking like how are games meaningful and looking at specific games and asking how they generate meaning. And two, trying to bring academic discussions of games, um, you know, by scholars, people with PhDs and stuff into a more publicly accessible format, such as a video essay, as opposed to being in a 200-page book or in an academic journal that's, you know, locked behind some paywall somewhere. Because I think that a lot of a lot of uh, scholars and academics have some really good and interesting things to say about games. And I think um, some of the times the discussions that can be had on, on a website like YouTube can be, um, it's like they can be retreading conversations that have already been had. And, and so to some degree, if you don't know what has been said, you can't say something new. And, and like, I think a good example of that, I would say, is um, one of the, my favorite video essayists and the one who literally inspired me to get into video essays is Tim Rogers or Action Button. Makes ex- oh, yes. extremely long videos. That, um, he's the final boss of video essays i swear yeah (laughs) i don't know how he does it like tim rogers like i don't have the attention span to sit through a two-hour movie like i don't really watch movies and especially ones that are longer than two hours because i just i just don't have the attention span for it i drift off i just do anything else but like he made a six-hour review of Tokimeki Memorial and I watched that thing in one sitting and I was paying attention the entire time like it is mm-hmm. insane like it's because like my mind like drifts off when I'm watching movies but the that video kept my attention because it was drifting off with me if that makes sense mm-hmm. like it's so it's so bizarre it's so bizarre I love it I love that man's videos so much yeah check out tim tim rogers but this isn't about tim rogers yes so in that video the tokimeki memorial review um one of um uh, i don't know if i should call him action but i'm just gonna call him action button one of action buttons major points is that the player is a co-writer of the game and i think that's a great point i, mean, I really do i think it's like it's yes. a really it's a meaningful thing the thing is, is that is a discussion that academics have been having about games since like 2000 uh, or before even. And so I think it would have been fruitful if Mr. Rogers, oh yeah, Mr. Rogers, there we go. Uh, if Mr. Rogers had was more familiar with those. And that's part of uh, why I like to make videos is because I can introduce people to, oh, yes, this is an, a really unique and interesting concept. But people have had it before, and if you know that, you can then ask further questions, right? It's not I'm not saying someone has said this before, thus this point is meaningless, right? More, oh, someone has said this before, you can look at what they said and see what is your new thing, Tokimeki Memorial, add on to this discussion, rather than proposing it wholesale, our whole cloth is new. Um, and so that's one of the things that I try to do in my essays is try to bring in a scholarly perspective to introduce the audience um, to thinkers that they maybe aren't familiar with. Yeah, I think wow. your your perspective is valuable, is very valuable on its own because, you know, like uh, most people who, do- who talk about games, uh, like the general discussion around games consists of people 
saying, just evaluating their experiences uh, rather than uh, comparing it to like pieces of literature of like what Jacob Geller would do or some someone like Jacob Geller. I don't know if, if Jacob Geller has a PhD. I don't know, but it doesn't really matter. He, de- he definitely seems like an English guy to me. Uh, that's where I am. I'm in an English department. Um. <laughs> yes. What video are we talking about today, Zolti? Uh, the video we are talking about is the Zelda one. The one that... Oh, what, what's the title? Do you have the title? <laughs> the title has changed uh, multiple times. I, I'm Zulti, somebody who Zulti, just changed their titles. I'm going to need you to get the titles right on the first try in, in future yeah, episodes, a, please. I'm pulling it's, it up right important. now. <laughs> Maybe you just important. need to call the co-host. It's called the, invisible, <laughs> it's called the Invisible Tutorial of... Uh, yes. Yes. Of a Deku Tree. Yeah, or well, right now it's the invisible tutorial of the Ocarina of Time, uh, but uh, but both are okay. It's it doesn't really matter yes. what the title is. The video is the same. That would be actually the first interesting uh, topic to talk about. Like, why why do you change the title? I know the answer, but the listeners may not. So, <laughs> uh, so you change the title for a couple of reasons. Um, the first is just. If you look at it and you kind of just ask, like, is this title accomplishing what I set out to do? And I think I I have a pretty particular problem with my video titles, which is that I tend to want the video title to tell you what's going to be in the video. But that's really not the purpose of the video title. The purpose of the video title is to get you to click on the video. Um, And so sometimes you'll change a title for that reason, uh, to make it more enticing for the, the reader to, or the reader, the audience to click on. The other reason that you might change a title is because you might have added something in there that you don't feel like you need anymore. Like I used to put video essay at the end of all of my videos and I took them out. Uh, then Resbutin suggested that I do so. So um, so like, like that's one way that this one changed as well. This one didn't change too much. I'm trying to think of one that really changed. None of these have really... I guess uh, one like the portal one was a love letter to portal speedrunning, and now it's just the beauty of portal speedrunning. I don't change them too much. That was actually but, the first video you know, I, I've seen from you. I think the portal one. That's nice. That's also Me too. Really good. Can recommend. I had a video title change because it it was like I wanted to do a video essay with like a really clickbaity title. So my my video on how to make a great villain, I I was like how to make a great villain in just two steps. And <laughs> which I thought was funny, uh, but yeah, uh, and, uh, I also think that you got like a ton of arrows <laughs> on the thumbnail stuff, like just, yes, just typical yes, clickbait yes. stuff. Anyway, uh, those are the video. So right at the beginning, you list three things that you are going to talk about in the video, and uh, I think we can just kind of take those points to sum the video up for for people who have not seen it. Um, so sure. you say that the Deku Tree matters for Ocarina of Time. That's your first point. The Deku Tree matters for matters for the for the Zelda series. It's the second one, and the third one is that the Deku Tree actually matters for our general understanding of games. Can you elaborate on that, just for the people who? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So just to summarize those three points, I have it. I have the video up, and I have the point in the video where I uh, where those are up. It's 2.31, in case anyone's, I don't know, really wants to look at the video. So first, why the decade matters for the accurate of time? Uh, because um, because it's the player's introduction to the game, right? Uh, it's the first dungeon. It sets the it sets the standard for what's going to come for the rest of the experience. And so that's the, that's the general just why it matters for accurate of time. Two, why it matters for the Zelda series is because um, 
generally speaking, the Zelda series has a profound shift from 2D to when it when it moves from 2D to 3D. I, the basic argument I make is that it shifts from an action adventure game to an action adventure game, right? Um, which is maybe a subtle move, but um, but it becomes more about the adventure. More um, and a key moment in the deck tree would be where you have to leap from a high height and crash through a spider web in order to descend further into this maze-like place that you're in, and um, and because of that shift, the Decker Tree has to somehow accomplish introducing a viewer or a player who has only played 2D games to the new 3D environments. And so I ask, how does the game kind of accomplish that change? And then finally, my third point, why it matters for our understanding of games, um, is basically because the Decker Tree is like, is change or the way that games change in a kind of a physical location within a game. Um, it's it's like, it could, because of points one and two, we can see the Decker, that this this level is re, is a response to all the different changes that have happened, right? Because we've moved, made a shift from 2D to 3D, because you've made a shift from one style of dungeon to another, et cetera. Um, and so, and this is important for me because I define games um, by, uh, uh, I don't think I quote them in the video, but Thomas Malaby has this, uh, who's one of my professors actually, has this wonderful article called Beyond Play. And in it, he defines games as um, as processes. Like uh, they're always changing, they're evolving as you're playing them, right? As opposed to this is as opposed to like a movie. A movie is not a process because you press play and it plays without you. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't change. Movies are great. I love movies. I have a master's degree in film. Uh, but um, what makes games unique, at least according to Beyond Play, is um, is that they change over time, and I think the decadence is a really good encapsulation of such change. And so that's so that's why I explain that, it, or how I explain that it matters for our understanding of games because it is change uh, localized. Yes, and the other main difference would also be the interaction, uh, the interactivity of games. So that's like also a main mm-hmm. uh, thing. But well, yeah, the the change is the interactivity, right? When you make a mo- when you press left or right with Mario to make a move, you are changing the game right so oh, interactivity that's what you is mean. okay I, I thought i thought that you mean the thing that you spoke about in the end of the video that that the deco tree accomplished its goal by by building up on these game mechanics that the player already knew and making them more complicated and therefore also more challenging mm-hmm. i thought that that was what, what you meant by by changing that that they were constantly uh, evolving with the mm. with the growing game knowledge of the player. It's yeah, it's definitely both and. Uh, it's not one or the other. And I a lot of my discussion is based around the design of the of the of the level design of the Deku Tree, right? And so um, yeah, I would say that the level design reinforces that idea that things change, that things are building as you're playing them, um, for sure. Yeah. So so you yes, um, you are saying that the Deku Tree that's your main point, right? That that's uh, that the Deku Tree is a good tutorial and that uh, developers may learn a lot from that level because it accomplishes teaching the player how to play the game and you are prepared for the rest of the game after you leave that place. So Yes, well, the importance of, and this isn't something new or groundbreaking that I'm about to say, but... The importance of tutorials can't really be understated. Like, if the Deku Tree was designed... You know, it's just uh, something that that came to mind right now. Like, 
if the Deku Tree wasn't as intuitive or interesting of a tutorial as it is, then then it's probable that uh, Ocarina of Time wouldn't be the cult classic that it is today, because a lot of people would bounce off it. Uh, yeah. A lot of first a lot of first time players would would bounce off it, and it wouldn't have the the meaning and impact that it it did have and still has. So it it's it really goes to show and especially because it was the first 3D the first 3D Zelda game that it was a transition point in not just the series but in games in general the deku tree reminds me a lot well sort of the other way around because the deku tree came first but like the first area of metroid prime the frigate orpheon it's an area that just like the deku tree is like this small uh control of what you can do in 3D. That they give you all of the abilities that you're gonna have in the entirety of the game, and then they take it so that you see how these abilities work in 3D, and then you they take it away from you, and you can start having the adventure and getting back up where you were at the beginning now that you know how these things work in 3D in Metroid Prime. 3D tutorials Tutorials for transitional 3D games were super important. And it's really crazy to think about how things would be different if if things like the Frigate Orpheon or the Deku Tree or the first level of Mario 64 or, or stuff like that weren't as meticulously designed as they were. How games would be today. That's kind of classic Miyamoto. Um, Miyamoto, yes. I think, is very famous for saying, design your first level last. Um, yes. That's like the best advice you can give. It's inc- it's it's incredible how correct that is. But yeah, I think, um, obviously, yeah, a tutorial is, um, is important for the reasons that you listed. Though I think it is worth noting that the Deku Tree, well, I, I, I call it the invisible tutorial, right, in the, in the title in the thumbnail and i think that that's true because the tutorial for ocarina of time is or the 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 tutorial as an explicit tutorial uh, is definitely that first area we have to go get a sword and shield and collect rupees and right that's basically like here you're in a safe environment you cannot die you know uh just go collect things and kind of learn how to move around and the decorator is kind of the invisible tutorial because it's let it doesn't explicitly tell you how to do anything it's right. It's not saying go fuck, go collect some rubies, right? It's just like, oh crap, there's some spiders on this wall. You can't climb it. You're gonna have to go find a way to get around it. And you find a slingshot, and then you shoot the spiders, and you go up. Um, and so in that way, it's not an explicit tutorial, which I think is often better for the player. The player players don't want want often don't want to be handheld. You don't want to have the, the game explained to you. The beauty of a game like Tetris, I think, is that it needs very little explaining, right? Uh, you know, there's basically lines. no tutorial in Tetris, right? Like in the first, exactly. the first game, the and yes one, uh, I can't recall that. Uh, I don't think that it had any tutorial. <laughs> no, it's just like it's just like boom, go. It's like and, yeah. and you just and play. I, and I could totally even see myself um, making a video. I probably will never make this video, um, but on like Super Mario 64, because you brought it up, I think that game also has a tutorial and an invisible tutorial. The tutorial is uh, the courtyard that you start in. Yes. You can just jump around, yes. right? Very what, yes. much commented on already uh, by many, uh, many uh, video game analyzers. Um, but 
the invisible tutorial would be that first level and asking the question, how does this level, which is not explicitly a tutorial, teach the player how to play the game, like bob Battlefield? Um, I think the, the most obvious one is that for the most part in Super Mario 64, you climb things, right? It's a platforming game. Uh, and so the very first star that you're supposed to get in bob Battlefield is climbing the little mountain that's at the center of the stage and killing Babam, right? Which which prepares you for how to beat Bowser. You basically kill him the same way you beat Bowser by grabbing him from behind. And two, it teaches you to t- to climb tall things, which is what you're going to do all game. And so um, I don't know. The, the idea probably has some legs. The idea of, but I think it's important to note the difference between the tutorial, which teaches you the X's and O's of the game, and an invisible tutorial like the Deku Tree, which implicitly teaches you what to expect for the rest of the experience. And a game could have a brilliant tutorial but not have a good invisible tutorial. And then the player gets lost or doesn't know what to expect. Yes. I really love explicit tutorials too, by the way, because I think they're really funny. In like an awkward enough time, I remember <laughs> I remember uh, there's this like one Kokiri girl like that's sitting that like that's sitting, in the sitting shop. You... at a high point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's sitting at a high point and you go uh at that high point in the in the Kokiri forest and you talk to her and she's like isn't this view pretty change the camera with the left and right <laughs> arrows <laughs> and, and i just find it really yeah i just find it really funny when characters in the game tell you the game's controls yeah that's like a typical zelda thing i think like in zelda it's always like yes. that. it's still like that in breath of the wild but uh, it's interesting that you brought up Mario 64 because that's exactly where I got stuck. Like you mentioned, like, I I got to be the How first boss. How did you get boss. stuck at Mario 64, dude? <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, had, I collected the first star, you know, the one on the top of the mountain. And then I couldn't go... I, I went back to the castle. And then... Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't go, yeah. cu- couldn't enter a door because there was not a door with only one star required so what do i do there is one with only one star required but <laughs> no it's way really they just missed the yeah, door there is. you can go to womp's fortress with oh. only one star oh man and okay. and also and also you can just get more stars in in bob-omb's battlefield well yeah but it feels like you beat bob-omb's battlefield right you went up you beat the guy at the top of the mountain yeah but i can see that but i didn't i yeah. didn't do anything else it was just like i went to the top of the mountain and then i did that but but I, I've never, I've never heard that. Uh, I don't know. For, I don't know. I'm Mario just 64. too overwhelmed with the Mario controls in general. Same thing in Odyssey. Like, ah, uh, there are just so many moves. I didn't have the chance to to learn because this is my first like 3D mm-hmm. Mario game. I don't yeah. know. It's. I, I think you just get to. You just have to get used to it. But yeah, yeah. it's crazy. It's crazy how many moves. Uh, you can do in that in that game. Are, they are so hard uh, to pull off. Like I've been practicing this uh, this move where you jump, where you, where you press jump, throw your hat, and then kind of like jump on your hat so that you you, yes. you gain height. And I've been yeah. practicing that for like thirty minutes, and I still can't pull it off. <laughs> so I I think the important thing to note about the Mario games that I think a little bit pokes a hole in the your criticism here. Is that yes, there are a lot of moves, but they're not required. You don't need to know how to do any of them. I just really. want to feel cool. Like you can, yeah, you want to feel cool, which is great, right? That that's part of playing the game, right? Is getting having that feeling that the game evokes. 
But I think that one of the brilliant design aspects of Mario uh, 60, all the 3D Mario games for the most part, is that the basic jump and move, it will accomplish, will get you to the end of the game. Like you literally could just never do like the long jump or the triple jump. And yes, you'll miss some things, of course, along the way, but you can just beat the game without them. Yeah, that's true. Yes. I actually uh, watched the video exactly about that uh, from Wizabot. I don't know if if you've seen that one. But he explained, I don't think I've seen that one. He explained that um, his girlfriend tried Mario 64. And uh, I, I don't know if she beat it or not. But she had a lot of fun because you just don't need all the controls. So I guess you can get to the end of the game with uh, without any, or not any game knowledge, but very little knowledge about the jumps and moves. So yeah, that's, that's a cool yes. thing. And uh, I really appreciate that Nintendo... Uh, really wants to make their games accessible in that sense. Yes, by the way, we are recording this uh, on the day after Mario's Mario's death. Uh, rest in peace, Mario. A moment of silence for Mario. <laughs> anyway, moving on. So back to the back to your video, uh, to the to your Zelda video. So you said in the video that that we should consider how much these limitations that these uh, game developers had back then actually allowed developers to to come up with something new and refreshing concerning the game design? What do you mean by that? Mm-hmm. Well, um, in the case of Ocarina of Time, the limitation is that the the player is unfamiliar with 3D environments, uh, and thus you, have to, you can't just throw them into a 3D environment. You have to teach them how to... Uh, play in a 3D environment. But to teach someone how to do something really requires an act of, uh, of creativity in the first place. So that's one example of it. Like to teach someone how to, how to do that, you have to. Um, uh, but I think uh, the more important thing there is that I think a lot of times when we imagine kind of creative freedom, I don't know, we imagine like uh, like you have a, a canvas that's infinitely large and you have infinite colors and you'll never run out of paint you know, or whatever, right? And you could, I don't know, delete on on and off and things like that. But limitations uh, help create art in a lot of uh, profound and meaningful ways, whether that's in poetry, right? Which is, um, if you look at like Shakespeare's poetry, it's very limited in terms of um, iambic uh, lines, right? Where like, there, like Shakespeare has a rhythm to his uh, his writing because everything is iambic or like as like da 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 or actually it's da 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 da, but it's like that creates like the rhythm. That, that's a limitation that ends up yielding a more meaningful result. In the case of video games, these limitations come in multiple factors. One is as the uh, as I've already kind of discussed the um, the limitations of the player. Right. This another one though would be. Um, the limitations of the technology that you have available to you, right? You can't make a 3D game on an NES, or at least not a, not a very good one. In the case of Ocarina of Time, I think that there there are a lot of limitations in terms of like memory and storage that like they had to find really creative solutions for. If you know how easily the game can be broken by speedrunners, you know that um, those kind of limitations can. Oh yeah, that's crazy! Uh, like uh, the, those sword jumps and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, exactly yeah ocarina of time is has to be one of the craziest speed runs well it has so like many ever. glitches but it actually <laughs> makes the it, it actually makes player be uh able to appreciate the game in this new way because of the all mm-hmm. of these glitches so 
think that's part of the yes. game. <laughs> game design with limitations is so is so fascinating to me. Like I have so much respect for NES games like um like Ninja Gaiden or Castlevania because I consider those like some of the first examples of like you know because th- those games are pretty short a lot of the times they made them really hard to like um make them feel longer that you have to play them longer to beat them they were they're sort of the first examples of like balancing difficulty in a game in a in a very like clever and meaningful and designed way i'm talking games like uh the castlevania trilogy the ninja gaiden trilogy i i I love those games because of just how they use their limitations to to instead in yes they use they use their limitation they sort of invest in difficulty to get their money's worth yeah so another thing that you mentioned in the video is that Ocarina of Time never makes you solve the same puzzle twice. And that's interesting because uh, I think that's also a typical Zelda thing. No Zelda game makes you like do the same thing twice. It's not like, uh, you know, these um, like RPG games where you have very similar quests, where you have like uh, kill 10 um, monsters and then bring me back their, their items. That, that's like their so, pelts. Yeah, their pelts. <laughs> we, we talked about this. That was the exact same thing actually in the previous episode. Never mind. <laughs> so, like <laughs> RPG quests, there are so many of them that the developers have to make them similar because I don't know why, because it's, it's easier to do. But Zelda games have been always like this that they said, okay, we actually want less. So, these puzzles, we want to make them really good. <laughs> But mm-hmm. um, yeah, but actually, in Breath of the Wild, it's I think it's it's the same. It's the first Zelda game that makes you do do similar quests like more than once. If you well, think of like the Kokiri, not the Kokiri, like the, the Korok seeds, these mini puzzles throughout the whole game. Um, typically, I would say that they would still generally fit in the in the category of not doing the same thing twice. I, I use that term kind of broadly. I think like, you know, like, let's say you've got to put rocks in a circle, right, to make a Korok seed appear. Well, there's a, you know, there's a difference between where those rocks may be, you know, how you get the rocks to where they have to be. I think a great example, Breath of the Wild, of that attitude, at least, is the shrines, right? None of the shrines are exactly the same, except for the the, the battle shrines, which those do have, I think, some variance among them. But I guess those would be kind of, I guess Breath of the Wild does do it a little bit than... But uh, when the Waker does it as well, you have to go find all the uh, golden puzzle pieces, oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, which can get tedious. But yeah, I think I think a lot of games do the don't you don't have to do the same thing twice. I think most of them do it not you don't notice it because they do it successfully. They do it well, right? Um, but because it, it is very noticeable, as you kind of say, like go collect ten pouts. Okay, I have to go kill ten of these wolves. And there's not really a difference between killing the first and tenth wolf. Uh, and thus, it feels redundant. It's it's, it's what we yeah. call grinding, I think. Mm-hmm. Yes. By the way, I rem- uh, uh, it's funny that you mentioned not ever having the same puzzle twice because I remember in my second playthrough of Ocarina of Time getting stuck in the Deku Tree. Hmm. Where did you get stuck? At what part? In my second playthrough because there's this part where you have to dive 
to hit a switch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's not really something you do in in any other part of the game or in any other Zelda game. Like, usually when there's a switch underwater, what you do is, like, drain the water or find something to, uh, like, put underwater so that you, you, you like, have this the switch press. There isn't really an, an instance outside of that where you have to just bonk your head on the on the switch while swimming. Oh, so you were. To, yeah. So what you mean is that it's the only time you have to do that? Oh, okay. To to do that. So like on my second playthrough of it, I was like, "How do you how do you do that switch? Why don't I remember how do you, how you hit that switch?" And and then when I and then when I did it, I wasn't stuck for long or anything. I wasn't like, "Ah, oh, this is this is taking me days or something." But but then I was like. That's not something you can do in 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 the in like the rest of the game. So mm-hmm. I I just re- remember that being like an odd instance of yeah of I, something I think... that they introduced but they didn't really take advantage of later in the game. Or them or there there might be instances, but I don't remember. I remember that in the water temple, you have to drain the water like all the time, so yes. you don't really have to swim at all. Actually, if I remember, oh no, you have to swim. You have to swim, but. The switches are kind of in obvious positions, and even if you, even no, if, it, when you swim, you usually put on those boots so that you are automatically on the bottom of the like. Yes, yes. Usually, like uh, what later in the game, if you see an underwater switch, you you put on the iron boots. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so it was, it was, it was odd to see an instance of that where you don't have the iron boots, and I was like, "What the fuck do I do here?" I think maybe the goal of that was to show the player that in this game you can actually access things that are underwater, because yes, yeah, because in in older yes, games, yes, that is the point of that. It wasn't like that. It's fundamentally right. It's a three dimensional puzzle because not only do you have to sink down to press the switch, but what is, what is pressing this switch do? It lowers the water, so then you can get underneath this spinning spiky thing and w- with a moving platform that's moving back and forth across the water. And so, right, it's uh, it introduces the player to... It's like all 3D, right? Like, like, And you can totally see the game designers, right? Like, they're just going to town, right? They're, like, so excited to have, like, 3D, right? They're just, like, every puzzle is going to be really, like, three-dimensionally motivated, um and that's i think that's a key example of of one of them mm-hmm. yeah i can definitely see that i love it when game designers like have this new have this new toy uh, so to speak like uh the most infamous example of this would be motion controls with the wii oh, where, yeah. <laughs> where where it's the reason you have um something like WarioWare because they just had so many ideas for how to implement motion controls in a game that they were like okay make a game that has like all of them make a game that has uh, that has everything like like with all the i think there's like more than 100 of those micro games in, in WarioWare so Zelda is uh, one of their favorite ways to play with the uh, with the uh, these new toys Nintendo whenever they they have it. So the ways Skyward Sword, for example, or Twilight Princess, uh, use motion controls. You can tell that the game was very like designed for that. Like this is a Zelda game. We're gonna use this, and that's I don't know how to I don't know how to put this exactly because. Breath of the Wild. They they all have like a focus. Didn't all Zelda do- games have. Yes, yes. Breath of the Wild doesn't, except with like some of the switches 
like gyro features i think i think the focus of of breath of the wild is more like internal so to speak like it's more focused yes, the... on... you also have to think about technological limitations beyond just new controllers right like uh, rendering a full world without loading screens and the way that it is utilized yes. in in breath of the wild is would not have been possible on like the nintendo wii uh, it's, yes, it was obviously and possible on the Wii U because the game came out for the Wii U. But uh, but yeah, so you have to consider like I think a lot of times when we think of limitations in game developers, we think like I don't know the NES only had two buttons, right? Not that the NES was using a uh, the same exact CPU chip as the Atari Twenty Six Hundred. Uh, <laughs> I actually didn't know that. <laughs> uh, I actually time. helped my sister rediscover Mario today. Like we were mm. eating dinner and and um. I mentioned the thing with um, with Mario All-Stars, how it's no longer available, because my sister has a son, and I got him Mario All-Stars as a Christmas present. So I, I wanted to be like, a, I wanted to play like the cool uncle. I was like, hey, did you know that uh, Mario All-Stars, <laughs> that, that game I bought you, you can't buy it anymore. It's like it's... I wanted to like a uh, poke a little fun. I was like, it's like this super limited rare thing. <laughs> so what, what, did you, uh, what did they say? Yeah. So and uh, I I said this thing the, uh, about about Mario and this got and this got my sister like, what was that? What was that game I was playing? It was a it was a Mario game. It was um it, you saw Mario from the side and it it was on the console that you like put the cartridge on on top of it on top of it. And and on the and on the first level there were two blocks and one of them had a coin and the other had a mush had a mushroom like she started saying these details and was like I think that's the first I think that's the first uh, Mario game you're thinking of like the the OG Super Mario Bros. Right, but I, I, and and the like the first Mario came out on the NES right so you didn't yes. put the cartridge yes, on the, top the, but that was the SNES. Uh. Well, maybe she was remembering wrong, but that's <laughs> okay. what she said. Okay. Anyway, uh, Era, you are, you are also called SNES, right? That's that's like also name of yours for some reason. It's, it's a different slang. handle, yeah. I mean, I made the I am Era to make my YouTube channel. I didn't want to. Can't really name a YouTube channel SNES. <laughs> yeah, uh, people might get confused. I'm also I'm also surprised that that I am Era was still available because it's the meme, right? It's it's is it a meme? It is it is a meme, yeah. It, well, it's funny because uh, the so it's often pointed or thought of as like a famous example of a of a glitch in a game uh, because um, the a character in um, Zelda two actually speaking of Zelda um, tells Link I am error like that's his name, but it was actually a mistranslation. So in um, in the original Japanese, it was a joke. There was one character named Bug or Bugu uh, in Japanese, and the other character named like Glitch. And like, so it was a joke that like, you know, like these characters are this funny computer term, right? Like com- Bug and Glitch. But when it was translated to English, Bug was still there, and I don't think people picked up on that. But er- they they mistranslated like Glitch to Error, and so it's I am Error, right? Kind of sounds like. 
like some sort of coding glitch. But what's funny is the way that text was put in games back then, right? It wasn't like a one-to-one translation where you'd actually have somebody manually put in every letter. Somebody manually put in that put that in. It's not like a glitch that he says that he's error. It's not like some overflow of the code, right? Which we would expect uh, maybe if you know if your computer came back with an error. But still, it lives on in cultural memory. There were there are a couple other I am errors, but none of them were very large. And now I think I'm. I'm the largest and most active. Um, I am the biggest error. But, but you're the only one on YouTube, right? <laughs> no, I'm talking about there. There were a couple others on YouTube. They weren't. They didn't appear to be active. Can channels, you? So can I you be called it. the same? Can you have the same name as as another creator? Yeah. You can. Really? Yes. I didn't know that. Yes. There, there's there's another there's another YouTuber called Dark Fi. I think. Okay. So uh, like literally, the R. like literally, my name. Like literally, my name without the R, okay. or maybe he lost it in the war or something. <laughs> anyway, is there anything left that you would you would like the listeners to 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 know about your video about the uh, Zelda my videos or just that video? Um. So first, let's do the Zelda video. Yeah, I think I think the idea about the uh, the processional nature of games and that games are always changing underneath your feet um, is like is really important to keep in mind when you're if you want to be like a cultural analyst of games like you don't just try to ask what a game is ask a, ask how a game changes uh whether that's over time whether that's from one iteration to another whether that's in the act of play like how does it change from start to finish or from one play session to another um i think that that's a really fruitful way to begin games analysis a lot of times if you start trying to talk about what a game is or isn't uh your analysis is going to ring hollow because it because games do change. And so if you say a game is one thing today, it may not be that thing tomorrow. Yeah. 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 Like I always, um, I don't know exactly when I realized that games change, but it's not, it's not just that your opinions, it's this, it's this thing where how a game can, can become completely different while you play it. And sometimes the moment when you realize that, that the game has changed, is where something clicks in your brain and you start loving that game, if that makes sense. Sure. Error. Um, do you have any writing tips on scripts that, uh, that you would like to share? Um, uh, because you are a literal writing teacher. I, mean, I, I think you have you some know, knowledge. If- if I could give you some really good knowledge, uh, then I probably might not in like five minutes or two minutes or whatever. I probably wouldn't need to teach a class on it. But uh, but uh, a couple of um, a couple of things come to mind. The first is uh, revisions. Good. I don't revise my papers enough, actually, or my videos. I usually will just pump out a video, and it doesn't go through much revision. But if you're looking to make something, um, as if you're not a that's just teacher, a flex. And uh, no, it's not not necessarily. Some some of my sometimes you I put out a, le- a idea I wish I thought through more. Um, but um, anyways, um, revision's really good. You should write something, put it down, come back to it, and reconsider what you're doing, um, because um, writing is a process. Um, that's a very common refrain in writing pedagogy. Um, two, uh, this is one's really simple, but avoid the words very and really like this game's really good this game's very good uh just also like, like there's a better simple word. Ev- evaluations I, I think like simple 
evaluations like like good and bad. I think you should yeah, avoid that. In fact, you had uh, implied that in my video, I say that the Ocarina of Time's Deku Tree is a, is a good tutorial. In fact, I don't think I actually say that in the video. I, no, I pro- it's you implied don't. because I I talk so much about it. But uh, but yeah yeah uh, like. I'm thinking about maybe doing some videos where that are called even reviews, but even even if you're making a review, it's not worthwhile. Like games are like it's a it's a it's probably a dull platitude at this point, but games are art and uh art uh no. it's not very interesting to call art good or bad. Yeah. It's really not. Uh that's a consumer evaluation, right? Like should you like IGN does that. They'll tell you if you should spend $60 on a game. If you're making like a video essay, don't I don't care. I don't care if you think the game is good or bad. I want you to tell me what the game means, why it matters. Um and a bad game can matter just as much as a good game can. And uh um and so yeah, simple evaluations of titles is it's dull. Um and it, it's not going to lead to you making I think content that you're that will really enrich the lives of your viewers. Is there a game is there a specific game that you didn't enjoy but you would say it had a an impact and a meaningful and necessary impact on you personally um that's a good question i'm pulling up my steam library as i um one thing i'll note about that question is that uh, i have i have a very uh positive spirit so i typically can find something to enjoy in almost any game i play um like i like you know like I, I definitely got frustrated while playing getting over it oh for yeah, instance. yeah but uh <laughs> But I still like that game, even though I felt frustrated. I really like that game too. I respect it, and I really respect uh, its its creator, uh, Benefati. Like, yeah. So, what was the game that you 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 mentioned that it was like that you didn't enjoy it specifically? Yeah, but... I, I I really really hate this game. Uh, it's called Power Rangers Battle for the Grid. It's a fighting game based on the Power Rangers intellectual property. Is it like a strategy um, game? No, it's a fighting game. Okay. Uh, I think I might have heard of this. Yeah, I played on Xbox Game Pass. I I do a live stream each week um, where we play competitive games. It's kind of what, what's your a, Twitch name? One of the things I do. For, uh, it's serious underscore play, but it's a it's a collaborative. It's of, of graduate students. We all stream there. Check um, out the I, link so below. It, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah. So I I stream like once or twice a week uh, through them. Um, but anyways. Uh, we played Power Rangers Battle for the Grid as part of like a fighting game month, and I think I grew to appreciate fighting games more because of how bad that one was. Because it it made me like think about what do I like about other fighting games that I don't like about this, right? Um, and so yeah, I mean, I, I've often I bounced off plenty of games. I like I'm not uh, I don't really like RPGs. I like like turn based RPGs very much, and I used to like when I was a child, probably because like you're on you know you're on on your game boy and you're stuck in a car for 12 hours it's it's an rpg game is a perfect way to blow that time away but uh now that i'm an adult like if a game doesn't like have me pressing buttons to do things within like 15 minutes i'm just like okay next game please um but anyways so like so there are quite a few games i don't like but i found power rangers battle for the grid meaningful precisely because of everything it wasn't which is um maybe counterintuitive but uh oftentimes bad things make us contemplate what makes good things good. Yeah, yeah. I think it's always yeah. important to have have that in mind and have like 
this sort of perspective. And that's also why it's important to, to play bad games. I think Video Game Donkey does that on purpose, just trying out mm-hmm. bad games so that he can appreciate good ones more. I think that's a very interesting thing. That's an interesting experience. I might, I might try. Yeah, I might try that out because I've never played a bad fighting game. Like I play, like uh, I, I freaking love fighting games. Like it's the only type of multiplayer game that I really like. Smash Bros, Tekken, and Guilty Gear are my jam. So yeah, I've never really played a bad one. Like I don't know what, what, what's a bad fighting game like? Maybe I. Uh... I don't know. I'm not really familiar with with the genre at all. Like there yeah. are there are bad ones. I think. Yeah, I think yeah. Like it's hard to you you know part of it's you find it in the act of play, but with Power Rangers, it's just it didn't feel like it felt like. Uh, even for me, even for us, it was just like we were just pressing buttons, right? We weren't really thinking about what we were doing. And and it, it, the actions, you know, fighting games have a very distinct rhythm, which is block and then attack and then block and then attack. And the game yeah. didn't feel like it, like it felt like that rhythm was just off or wrong. But I think the point is what matters more than the actual game or the, uh, which is just that you can play something you don't like and find it interesting. I, I My next video is on Greece. A G-R-I-S, Gris. Which I think most people probably pronounce it Gris in their head, but I, their Twitter handle said that it is actually pronounced Gris. Um, but I'm, my next video is on Gris, and I was my fans voted on it uh, for on Twitter or whatever, and um, I didn't really love the game. I, um, I was expecting to like it more than I did, but uh, but I still, I think I, I think the video has something to say about why Gris is a, Gris is a meaningful game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I talked with Leonardo de Sicci once and he said that he actually really disliked Hellblade for its gameplay and for like making you feel like that that you are going through psychosis and uh, schizophrenia. But he also said that it, it is an important game to to play through because it will make you understand how how these people think and what they go through and what they feel so it's an important game otherwise he didn't really enjoy the gameplay so so it's possible it's possible to to have a game like this and uh, i think that there is yes. nothing wrong with that but now that i think about it it would be interesting to say to, to see a game that is designed to be unfun that is designed to be hard to play through yeah uh, the classic example is the um, Penn and Teller's. Um, I don't know, maybe Pathologic. I, I would say Pathologic is still meant to be kind of interesting. Fun. The classic example I would say is the Desert Bus oh, game by yes. Penn and Teller, which is just—it's like an eight-hour game where all you do is drive a bus across the desert. There's nothing to see. There's nothing to do. It's like just tedious, right? Like the whole point is that it's like the point of the game is that it is bad and tedious. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but but yeah, but in that right in that badness is is there's a meaning like you know because it you know it asks kind of questions about human existence and work and there's a lot of questions there's a lot of uh, results you could probably divine from that that yeah a lot, lot of things to talk about there but I think that topic is for another podcast. Yes, we have reached the end of uh, this episode of Video Gems. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, as always, please check out uh, IMR's channel. They upload weekly, so there's a lot. Uh, so you have quite a lot of videos to to catch up on. And uh, um, also, I was lying uh, in the beginning when I said 
when I said I I I hate you. I don't. Oh, you got me. Um, April fools me. Also check out their their Twitch, of course, and uh, and follow them on Twitter because then you can vote on what video they will be making next. So yeah. Yes, exactly. Well, I have been Dark Fry. He has been Zolty Boy. See you next time. Bye bye. Bye. All right, I'm gonna press stop.